Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Modern Mind with today's guest, Mr. John Barkley, who is a former Scotland rugby captain, now in the whiskey industry, father of three, and finds himself commentating at Rugby World Cups and everything in between. So against the background of such a varied career, we talk through an awful lot today. But before we do exactly that, a couple of housekeeping requests, if you don't mind. Please make sure to hit follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. Make sure to check us out on YouTube, and whilst you're there, give the video a like and hit subscribe too. Thank you very much. Rate and or review the show on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you enjoyed this episode or any episodes previously, do please share them with a friend, family member, dog, cat, goldfish, or anything in between. Thank you very much. John and I really deep dive on his career, his reflections on it, whether he left anything on the table, what the future of the game is at a recreational level as well as a professional level, given the difficulty, commercially speaking, that the UK especially has been facing within the sport. This is all against the background of the Netflix documentary focusing on the Six Nations coming out on the Wednesday after this podcast goes live, I believe. So we we hear from John, who commentates at the World Cup and is very active in rugby still against a very long playing career, what he wants the outcome of that to be for the sake of the future of the game. We also just explore how he deals with the pressure of performing at the level that he did, how he applies these lessons to being a father, how he's applied these lessons to transitioning out of rugby, so that those of you that have no interest in the game can take a lot away from today as well. But before we dive into all of that, it is important to mention the show's sponsors, as without them, there would be no show. First up, we have Vivo Barefoot, who I've been wearing since January 2019, and you won't really catch me in anything else day to day. I'm, I'm kind of morphing into a cartoon character at this point, because I'm in the Novus pretty much every day. And whilst I do have a wide array of other options available at the house, because Vivo covers you across pretty much every setting that you could imagine, I've just really chosen the Novus as my weapon of choice day to day. So much so that I've actually stockpiled for the future, as I love them that much. All Vivos are wide, thin, and flexible, and have an open toe box as well as being zero drop, which is much more akin to being, you guessed it, barefoot. And this means that you can build your foot strength from the ground upwards. Study from the University of Liverpool in 2021 has indicated that you can improve your foot strength by up to 60% simply by wearing a pair of Vivos day to day. So if you want to be jacked and tan in your day-to-day -day life and apply your feet to that equation, then Vivos are the way to go. Generally speaking, my feet feel stronger, more robust, and I feel more in control of how I'm moving, running, and I'm just more comfortable on a day-to-day -day basis in them. And if you want to give them a go, you can use the code FERGUS20 until the end of 2023 to get 20% off. And if you're listening after that, then sorry, Fergus Vivo will have to do as it will get you 15% off. Please do let me know how you get on over social media as well, as I would love to hear how much you love them. Next up, we have Days Brewing, whose alcohol-free lager and pale ale are brewed just down the road from me in East Lothian, but sold nationwide. And I like to keep a fully stocked fridge, because when I'm craving a beer at the end of a stressful day, or at the end of a long week, or maybe with a, a takeaway on a Saturday night after a big training session, dare I say, when I'm inclined to reach for a beer, and there aren't any, but there is an alcohol-free one, I can have all of the ceremony of a beer, all of the ceremony of a pint, all of the enjoyment of a pint without any of the downsides, because it really doesn't take much alcohol for me these days for my cognitive ability, sleep, and therefore overall recovery to be affected. So simply by giving myself access to icy cold days lager or pale ale, I am making sure that whenever I have that sort of inclination, I can just have an alcohol-free one 
enjoy myself, get all that I want out of it without any of the downsides. That's not to say that I won't have an alcoholic beverage or or several every once in a while. It's coming up to Christmas time, which means that that'll be a bit more common. But generally speaking, day to day, week to week, I like to really minimize my alcohol intake for the sake of overall productivity, cognitive ability, sleep and recovery. So if you'd like to do the same, then you can save yourself 20% off with the code modernmind20 at checkout. And again, do please let me know how you get on over social media. So without any further ado, let's dive into today's conversation with John Barclay. John. Hello. Hello. You're just around the corner. I'm just around the corner. This is mightily convenient, isn't it? It is, and apologies for getting you up early. Yeah, it's all right, though. We're in here most of the time, but it's the, uh, yeah, at least we we made it work. We've shuffled around a lot this week, but, but here we are. Here we are. So... How was it presenting a Rugby World Cup rather than playing in it? Oh, um, do you know what? I get asked all the time, did I, well, the two things I get asked all the time, did I want to coach and and do I miss rugby? And the answer is uh, no and no. Uh, I kind of I feel like I dodged a bullet a little bit with coaching. Um, I, don't, I don't know many coaches that that really love it. And I think you have to really love it because it's, it's much harder than playing from like a time commitment and pressure point of view. And the other one is, do I miss playing? And people find it confusing. I'm like, no, I don't miss playing. Um, I played for 16 years and pretty much got everything I could out of the game. And the ending was, which you might get to, was, it, was, it was a bit kind of limp in terms of going out during COVID. But um, I guess that's a long way of answering your question. My enjoyment from rugby now comes out of one coach in my kids' team and two from commentating and presenting. So the World Cup was, yeah, it's mega. My, my World Cup experience as a player weren't amazing. Um, so to actually go and be involved and to like go over I, like I watch a lot of rugby and I, I see a lot of average rugby because it's just the nature of the beast you see some average stuff but I was over there for the two quarterfinals the Ireland New Zealand and South Africa and it's the two best games I've ever seen in yeah. my life yeah live so probably the best weekend of rugby ever yeah probably yeah it, it was like that kind of the London Olympics they had that mad mad Saturday um, see I, lo- I loved it it's uh, but it's the same as it's the same as anything which I learned it's like if you're in a it's a team if you're in a, a good team with good people uh, and you have a good crack, and you get to you get to watch rugby with your mates, really, and that's what it is, uh, and that's what it comes down to. I saw you got quite passionate about a few things along the way, just uh, watching on the telly, thinking, right, there are a lot of opinions floating around the Rugby World Cup this year. Yeah. What what do you think was done well? What do you think could have been done better on the whole? From a from a rugby, as in the playing point of view, or just just as a as as a spectacle, because the World Cup itself is it's the pinnacle of rugby, isn't it? It's it's meant to be what brings people into the game. It's yeah. meant to be what showcases what the game's capable of, what the operational capacity of the the country is. And without getting all geopolitical, yeah. it's a case of what what was your overall take on 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 the success of the World Cup? What could have been done better? What could have been done worse on the whole? I, I think that the challenge for rugby is how does it grow to become it's a global game but how does it become more than just rugby and if you watch the best or the, the most watched games in the world the nfl you know super bowl there's more to the to the match than just the game and i think they started to do a bit more of that the pre-game stuff we chatted with jim just before we came on you know getting you know jared butler involved you know rita or getting people who are not necessarily rugby people involved in the game and, and growing it that way was brilliant so I think I think as a spectacle, you know, I think it was brilliant. Every game was sold out. The coverage was great. Uh, you get good people involved. Um, I, I think it was a huge success. I think you can't control it. It would have been great to have France progress and have a home team. It, obviously, we can't control that. But 
Yeah, I just say, how, how does rugby grow? How do you keep getting this, the, the biggest spectacle, which is once every four years? And it was a, a huge success. There was a few issues with, with, with ticketing and all that. But you, you're going to have that anywhere you go. But every, everyone I spoke to who went over said it was was mega. And I, th- and I think it's something France do well. Obviously, the Olympics is there next year, this year. Yeah, it is this year. Like, this year, yeah. yeah. Well, some... It's strange that we don't know that. Yeah. I, I, I had this conversation <laughs> with somebody the other day. They it's were very like, early oh, in 2024. With the Olympics coming up, I was like, is it? This yeah, think, yeah, it, it, yeah it, skipped I, once they had the, the yeah I mean I don't know I find it odd that I don't know as a yeah. big I watch sports fan yeah correct correct <laughs> it, it won't quite be the golden era of uh, London Olympics just never the TV on all day every yeah, day yeah <laughs> but, yeah I think I think they just do it well but like France they had the world the, the football World Cup they've had they had the World Cup there in two thousand seven which was my first one and they they just they just do it well and the people get behind it and it's a uh, it's just one of those things you want to be part of and I was there for a couple of weeks and you just you you feel like you're part of something bigger so. I guess the challenge, and I was ch- this thing I was chatting to Jim, but it's very easy to get very excited for the couple of weeks around the World Cup, and it was seven, eight, nine weeks, whatever it was. How do you, how do you carry a momentum? How do you keep getting Jared Butler's involved? How do you yeah. Bardem? How do you keep getting these guys interested in the game? Because it's, the reality is that the club game is is well watched by, but you're a, a rugby diehard if you're going down to watch Edinburgh versus Cardiff on a Friday night. That's that's not your global audience. How do you keep, and that's the challenge for world rugby. How do you keep people really engaged? between tournaments because the reality is we get from the World Cup ended in October we've got nothing till February and then we've got nothing till and no one really watches the summer tourists hugely how do you how do you, is, how do you keep a, a, a sort of a global game interest and a global audience engaged for 12 months a year all against the background of the game getting increasingly physical which means the gap between games you can't play yeah. week in week out like you would and interesting that you mentioned the NFL because we had Rory Lawson on and we had a, a direct comparison discussion on the two and one of the clips that we discussed with him has popped off a little bit, and I'm going to bring up one of the one of the comments on that YouTube video just to get your take on because yeah. I think there's a real discrepancy in the UK, isn't there, with with people's love and passion for the game versus the understanding of the just basic commerciality that's required to keep it as is because yeah. the it's the game's struggling. It's struggling it, completely. It, it, it is struggling. So the question is how how is that solved so that in 15 years' time? the game can continue and union doesn't become yeah. a fringe sport like Lee could become because, I mean, I was never anything special on a rugby pitch, but it was a huge part of my life growing up. Yeah. And one too many concussions meant game Absolutely. over. And yeah, it, 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 until recently, every time I've seen a game of rugby, I've been like, fuck, yeah. I just want to get back in the mix with that because it's just so rewarding. And I think it is the best character building sport in the world. But let me just find this here. So... Um, what was the take? What was the take? I will just get this up because, yeah, direct easy comparison to the NFL, isn't it? Because, like for like, major yeah. sport, but it's not quite as simple as that. Um, oh no, has he deleted it? Has he deleted it? Has my comment scared him off? Didn't chase him back, did you? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, yeah, no, I think he's gone. Ah, no, here we are. Here we are. So, scary vision of progress. Went to an NFL game in Wembley. Biggest build-up to the biggest disappointment I've ever seen. Action for action three to five seconds and then stops. Different players on and off for different players. Four hours of boredom trying to be hyped up. The vision of creating events will lead us down the route of ordinary fans being priced out like the Premiership. I'm looking forward to Leinster versus Leicester for 30 quid with a few dirty pints and greasy chips. Thus weekend away and long may it last. So to be fair to Brian... The discussion with Rory was just a snippet of a bigger one. Yeah. Um, and Rory's take was essentially that we can learn a lot from the NFL to create that spectacle around yeah. the sport to get people that aren't interested in rugby in. But then 
the question is, how do you keep the ordinary fans happy and make them understand that for the game to survive, they need to potentially, I would argue, get out of the mindset of it was when I grew up, it was 15 quid a ticket. Therefore that's how it should stay. So what, 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 obviously if you had all the answers, you probably wouldn't be working in whiskey, but what do you think the, what do you, what do you see having been in the game now on the fringes of the game, looking at it through a lens of professionalism? What do you see the, the low hanging fruit and then the bigger picture thinking being to improve the situation that the game's in? Uh, I think there's a couple of things. There's a, there's a bit of a disconnect between the professional game and the amateur game, no matter where you go. But the amateur game pays for the professional game. There are people that attend the games, there are people that you know buy merchandise, and if they're disgruntled, they don't come to games. And there's a, I think I played in Wales for five years, and I, I got a lot of stick for this a couple of weeks ago. So they, had a, they moved the Ospreys versus Cardiff game to Bridgend, and they play, which I've got no issue with because there's, there's uh, contractual issues with the Swansea Stadium, so they can't use it. They're not the, the, the main tenant there. So they played at Bridge End, fine, not an issue. Uh, it was a mud bath, again, not an issue. Uh, it's old school rugby and it's, it's quite entertaining over Christmas. And they parked up a, a big HGV lorry behind the dead ball and people were watching the game in a trailer with like a leather, you know, the big curtain, like a haulage lorry. And I sort of said, this isn't, a, this makes a bit of a joke of the league. And it's, and I caught a load of stick. This is the best game. It was the best game of the year and the fans loved it. And it's back to, you know, the original days. I'm like, you're completely missing the point. The point I'm trying to make is at a time, like you said, when a game is probably struggling financially and you need sponsors and you need to you need to have it as at its best as many times as you can when people are watching it. That's not rugby at its best. And if you want people to engage and you want people to sponsor it and you want people to get involved, every time you get to showcase it, it's got to be looking spot on. So I think there's a bit about that. I think most teams are you know, a bit more savvy with it in terms of, how how they use social media, how they market, how they look for sponsorship, but it's about it's about creating global superstars, and I think there's a few that are doing it. Probably Sia Khaleesi, probably people that are managing to transcend the sport a little bit. The more of those you get in the game, the more global superstars you get, and the more you embrace that, the better the game will be. And I think women's rugby will probably be a big part of that. How do well, you? Well, Lions Tour just been announced as well. Exactly. How remarkable. do you engage fifty percent of the population? And the reality we have is that most people, I've got kids, they play rugby, the mums are heavily involved. Mums are massive drivers. Certainly in my house, my wife pretty much is the complete you know, chief of staff in our house. She runs, uh, she knows exactly what's going on. And if they're not going to play rugby, you know, the mums are a huge part of that. So the women's game would be a huge part moving forward. Um, and they're probably, uh, I think looking at, I mean, summer, is summer rugby the answer? Is a, is a global international calendar the answer? It's just so is so confusing and complicated because the game is governed by large bodies who are historically run the game and they've run the game and made huge amounts of money from it. So what incentive is there to change that? Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a really tricky one, but I, I do think playing less games is probably the answer. So you get less average games, making, you know, you've got to get teams with bigger playing budgets. You've seen that at the moment. Teams are folding and, and they don't have the playing budgets and you're going to end up with leagues with no player budget a salary cap, excuse me, where they just end up wiping the floor with other teams. Do you have faith in the future? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I think it's rugby's. Like, yeah, I think it's. I think it's if it's one of, if not the best team sport to play. I'd say. Uh, I'd say the. 
Yeah, I, I, we're, we're biased because we, we play that and we're, we're from Scotland and we're not we're not particularly good at American football or other team sports. But it's very true. Although, with, finally, somebody is going to, other than Jared Haynes, is going to give it a go with mm. Bree Samet, which yeah. is an interesting proposition, isn't it? I don't quite understand the mechanics of it, but my understanding is essentially the NFL UK have created some sort of a accelerated pathway, pathway yeah. for those with the skills present already yeah. to try and weasel their way into yeah. into something. But I'll admit, I don't know nearly enough about NFL to see where he'd be on a pitch or, or where his strengths would be. But it's an interesting... I saw a comment there as well, which was the, the worst possible... Terrible decision for his career. Just um, only money-driven decision. It's the opposite. Though, right? it's, just, it's just the balance of those two sentences are almost completely... It almost functions as an oxymoron because... Yeah. What what is a career for a rugby player? Is it prestige? Is it caps? Is it captaincy? Is it World Cups? What, what nobody can really define other than the individual no. what that is. And if you've got a short career, a career in a conventional sense usually revolves around financial gain over a long period of time and the progress and building. And if for him it is about the money, yeah, then maybe it could be the best decision he's ever made for his career. That's the challenge. But if he's if he's left, that 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 maybe signals a bit of a lack of faith in the direction that. Yeah. Things are going. I, I, I'm going to ask about this. I'm doing the Glasgow game tomorrow, and we're going to talk about it. And, and my my take on it is: I think, first of all, I think it's a really brave decision. Agreed. He's, yeah. t- he's 22 years old, and he's a superstar in Wales. It's actually quite hard to grasp just how big of a superstar he is in Wales. Like he is the poster boy in Wales, and he's and I think financially, he's he's probably earning a good chunk of change from his Gloucester contract plus. Um, international pay plus and he's a big deal in rugby so you have sponsorship he'll be a nobody in nfl nobody yeah nobody will care and people with his athletic profile are everywhere in america they're everywhere yes. and that, that's it's the, it's the standard strangely, he'll it, yeah. probably fall quite far down the pecking order of athletic profile people have played the game their whole lives so yeah i i think the timing of it was quite strange around day before six nations and by all accounts he found out he was approached on the sunday and made the decision on the monday wow that's the one thing I don't get. How to make that big a decision in that space of time, which speaks to me a little bit of someone that probably was not that happy or was looking for change or wasn't totally content with their lot and is looking to do something different. So yeah, I think it's gonna be it's gonna be tough for him. But you know, he's twenty two years old. He's can he come back to rugby? Probably he could he probably could. But it's a it's a huge ask. It is, and it's time away. Yeah, it's just it's just do it doing the reps, isn't it? If you've got two years of NFL focus coming back to rugby training mm. ground, you're going to be two years of absence in terms yeah. of just and the game n- changes. Yeah, I, I I think of all the positions that go away as a winger, the 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 way he plays the game, you'd probably be able to come back into the game. Um, will it tar his reputation? Probably not. I don't think he's young enough and. He was good enough and he's done enough. He's got 30-odd caps. He's 22 years old. Yeah. He's been on British and Irish Lions tour. He's done a load. Um, so yeah, I mean, I didn't see, I don't think anyone saw it coming. No, no. I, I, I Selfishly, I would absolutely love it yeah. if a Welsh lad yeah. made, the, made the NFL because boy went to school with Jamie Gillen. Oh, yeah, yeah. Went to, he, he gave Scottish us, Hammer. The Scottish Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> He's the Giants now, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. So when we were over in New York, he, he gave us some tickets to go and watch him play. Um, and Erin, my wife, could not comprehend coming from a enjoyment of rugby growing up in Scotland yeah. background. Why do they why do they swap over? Yeah. So what does Jamie do? Because you look at Jamie, you're like he's built like a brick shit house. He was a really good ten over here. He can move, he's really dynamic. 
and his his goal his role on the pitch is to punt the ball just and the ball, catch it off. and then place it very quickly. But That's he did it. he did get roped into taking a conversion a few weeks ago and he slotted it. So Oh, does he hold the ball as well? So punter? yeah, punter receives and holds the ball for the converter. I don't even know. Lays the the other kicker to, to kick it in a straight line. Never at an angle, key detail. Um, but yeah, if we had a Scottish lad and a Welsh lad, that's a... Cool. That's a good. That's a good. That's a good thing to just have. Have it. Have in the arsenal of things that you can bring up over a few pints. That's yeah. a good one to have. But your first cap was in a World Cup. Yeah, against New Zealand. Yeah, you've kind of peaked on day one, really. Yeah, <laughs> And then your last, your last international game was against Russia in yeah. a World Cup. Not the pinnacle. <laughs> not, 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 not the pinnacle. But, but after a long career, so how, how do you reflect on? Especially within that lens of, of of A to Z, how do you reflect on on your career as a whole? Uh, well, that's a big question. Um, for, first of all, I think I did I did more than I I thought I ever would do playing rugby, and I still I still vividly remember having a conversation at seventeen, about to go to uni, study medicine, and I got offered you know an eight, uh, Glasgow came through the academy and said, look, we're going to start these things called apprenticeships, and it was basically they paid you six grand a year to be a full-time rugby player. Six grand a year. And uh, that's not enough money to live off. No. <laughs> even even well, back well, in 2004. 2004, yeah, okay, okay. Um, yeah, that wouldn't scale up. No, it doesn't, it doesn't scale up, quite, especially quite when you much, use your yeah. first paycheck to buy TV. Um, like, I think I, yeah, like I, from there to, you know, playing for Scotland three years later to, you know, across the board playing, I played over 300 professional games. You know, managed to captain Scotland. Yeah, I'm pretty happy with with my lot. Um, and people that can sometimes think I'm being a bit a bit glib about it, but I was always, I always had a, I think a pretty rounded mindset, and it was just a game. And I and I, you know, I got super upset and about non-selection, about games that didn't go my way. But I was always aware that this is a game, and that's that's what it is. People are doing much more important things, and I was I was really lucky to do it. So I think. Of course, I would love to have done more in my career. That's probably. And is it, Are there any things you'd highlight as the more? Um, I would have loved to have gone on, on a Lions tour, obviously. Um, and I was never, I was never a good enough player to be someone that Lions tours picked more year on that tour. But I think if the <laughs> the Lions tours had fallen different years, I probably would have had a better chance of going. Because whenever I, the Lions tours came around, I was either injured or not playing very well, and that was the kind of reality. So I, I look, I look on with, with probably yeah, with real jealousy at the guys that I know that. I retired in 2009, 20, they went to South Africa. So just, I, I was kind of still very much attached to the squad and the guys that I played with and Scotland had a really good spell for through Six Nations and loads of guys went. I was like, God, that would have been good. Do you think, had you not, was your decision in 2019 to retire from international rugby influenced by non-selection for the Lions tour? No, I, I just knew the end was, the end was nigh. It was kind of, I, I went to World Cup and played didn't play well against Ireland. And then kind of just knew, I just, I'd ruptured my Achilles, managed to get back to the World Cup. Um, and then basically, you kind of know, you know when it's when it's time. I, I, I can't remember where I heard you say it, but it was, um, you were thinking ahead to your week off. Yeah, in a game. At Scarlet's. Yeah, yeah, During a game. Yeah, And yeah. it was just a bit of a light bulb moment, thinking, hmm, that's yeah, probably it was, it was, the wrong way was, to look at things. Yeah, it was, it was actually my last game, bizarrely. Um, my last game, it was actually against Cardiff at Murrayfield and we had a week off the next week and I remember running around thinking, God, I hope I don't get hurt because I've got a week off next week and I don't want to be in doing rehab or something. And I remember thinking, 
this isn't really the right mindset. And I, I probably wasn't, I wasn't very happy playing then Edinburgh under, under Richard Cockrell. It wasn't a particularly enjoyable yeah. place to be. And I was just, I just, and that's kind of when COVID happened. And I was like, do I keep moving? Do I keep playing? Do I moved the family. And I was like, do you know what? That's kind of it. You got you got you got to stop at some point. And I'm actually kind of glad it kind of made it quite black and white for me. It was like that, that's, this is it. Just, just stop. Not being happy towards the tail end of your career is kind of reflective of a of a, a long period of rugby very much falling into the traditional norms of male communication, sucking things up, not really approaching psychology in a pragmatic way rather than a preventative way. I know Dan Carter was the first one to really speak about using a sports psychologist mm. to enhance his performance rather than as like, oh, he's seeing he's seeing that guy behind yeah. that door in the, at the end of the corridor. But Graham Morrison was a huge part of your era. Yeah. And he was the first one out of that that group to really come out saying, look, I've not been doing all that well for a few years. Yeah, yeah, for sure. How did that impact your your core group of players around you, you yourself? Did that change any reflections on the team, the management, how things unfolded? Did it change anything in you personally? Was it a big turning point, that that discussion? With Graham? Graham and just the general attitude. Yeah, of, yeah. Of so it's a great, Graham was and is my best friend. Uh, he was best man at my wedding and I was best man at his and we kind of knew he wasn't very happy. Um, and he'd split up with a long-term girlfriend at the time. And I remember him being like really, really dark. And I, but at the time I was probably 20, 26. And I was like, and my, I was probably the same. And I, I feel terrible. And I, I said this to him, I felt terrible. Cause I was like, you know, come on, let's try to cajole him. And, and it, it was, it was much bigger than that. Cause he's written about that, hasn't he? That, yeah. That, that, that he, he, he got, somebody witnessed him having an antidepressant at half time or something. Yeah. And somebody chastised him for doing so. And yeah. What, what are you doing that for? Pills yeah. And, and kind of just a total lack of understanding around probably what he was going through. Um, and he's, he's lucky that he, he's kind of seen through the side of us on the day and he wouldn't mind me saying, he said, I still have, you know, times when I struggle a little bit. And he's, you know, on the face of it, super successful, played 30 all times for Scotland. He's got a great job, family, kids, all the lot. He, he did it. He, he completed it. But yeah. that's actually not, that's not actually not true. So, I kind of see a lot in my kind of group that, because I kind of was pals with a lot of guys that were slightly older than, than me, so they retired slightly earlier than me, so I kind of saw them go through the transition before I did. So, and you see it all the time, that guys are, I guess, not necessarily doing well or coping or struggling with it a little bit. So I, I probably, looking back, you know, things like I regret rugby was just probably not speaking to a psychologist. Not from a, I, I, I was lucky, I didn't never struggle with mental health issues, I never struggled with, depression or anxiety but I'm not arrogant enough to think that I couldn't or wouldn't or won't um but I just think would I have got a bit more for my career if I had um because times I struggled and, and times I didn't necessarily want to play the game or wasn't wasn't full of confidence or wasn't able to get the most out of myself so I think there's a huge amount of stuff that can be done in that space to help players to understand how to get the most out of your brain do you think the narrative as a whole in professional rugby sport in general I guess ha- has shifted in the right direction with mm. that because I mean it was it was only Nick DeLuca you're again very yeah. very hot on this stuff now very very mindset driven very yeah. very performance psychology driven and and there does seem to be a sort of awakening happening in in retired recently retired sports people which means that there are more prominent sports people that are currently playing that are either A, being more honest about when they've really struggled or B, being much more open and honest about how they're leveraging an understanding of their own mental health and psychology to become a better player. Yeah. Because I think it, for so long it was viewed as a performance 
reducer or a weakness or a vulnerability yeah. that could be attacked rather than a way of actually enhancing performance in the way that Johnny Wilkinson, yeah. who's now the most profound man in the world, yeah. and Dan Carter have leveraged it for actual performance. So you're, the lens that you look at the sport through now, do you think do you think it's moving in the right direction? Do you think there's a long way to go? What do you think the landscape is from a player well-being up here? For, the, I, I for think, those listening, I'm touching my head. <laughs> <laughs> I think it should be compulsory. I think it should be compulsory that you have check-ins with every club should do it. And it shouldn't be that, like you say, I, I've got to go and ask someone because I need some help. Because then you, you're, you're, you have to overcome a barrier there, which a lot of men and a lot of rugby players would just say, this is too embarrassing. I'm not going to go and ask for help. It's weakness. And, I'm not, and that, that still exists. So if I was a, a team manager or coach or CEO, I, I would make it compulsory to have you know, check in once a week and you, you, know, you monitor players and, and you're able there to assist and help them, them regularly because that's what players need. It's not, it's, it shouldn't be a wait for something to go drastically wrong to ask for help. It should be, well... Because you, you, you wouldn't do that with your, your ACL, would you? Yeah. Exactly. You should be speaking to people and you should be asking for help. And I think there's things that can... Whether it's performance or whether it's more mental health issues that you're struggling a bit with, how do you actually use that as a tool? Because we spend so much time in the gym and training and fitness and we neglect... And I neglected it, if I'm honest. Totally neglected it, just because... I don't know, I, I'm pretty laid back. I, I'm pretty, like I said, I was lucky. I, I didn't struggle with that stuff, but it's not to say that I wouldn't have benefited from someone helping me with my mindset. Um, I didn't necessarily believe that I could get an alliance to it, going back to your point. I, I didn't necessarily believe that I was ever good enough to do that stuff. Um, and I've spoken to coaches, I've spoken to, you know, coaches on that online tour, and they said, you know, you were, you were in conversations. You were, I was getting letters to say I was on standby, I was in the pool. And yeah, I still didn't quite believe that I was good enough. A bit of imposter syndrome potentially. Scotland yeah. were probably viewed as a, I mean, they were, they were the, probably the worst of the home unions at the time. So why would I believe that when we get drubbed that I could actually kind of elevate myself above that and actually be part of it? But then players did, you know, Stuart Hogg did, Finn Russell did. And you look at the group now and they've got a, a bigger belief now. That So that's from my selfish point of view, how could I have, used it to enhance my own self-confidence and belief that probably would be what i use it for but i think there's certainly a, i think there's a bit of a ways to go is, is probably the way to answer that i think it's is getting there but if you're having to ask for help we haven't got it quite figured out yet agreed on in terms of the last sentence as a statement yeah agree, agreed i think it should become second nature in the same way that strength and conditioning is there to reinforce all of the biomechanical movement patterns tendons ligaments that make yeah. up a effective rugby player there is a brain behind that that needs to make decisions that needs to be switched on. And if you're going into the game, like, for example, Graham's mentioned he was at certain points, yeah. you're not going to get the best out of that player. And off the pitch, that person is then going to be reflecting on a negative game. You're going to have Kevin from down the road on Twitter saying he's well, a dickhead. It, yeah, and that he, yeah. he could have done it had he not snapped his ankle when he was 12. All this usual stuff. But I think against that context... Your transition out of rugby, the inevitable identity questioning and the sort of crisis that comes from that process. Your your, your career ended, not in savoury terms, but not in the way that you'd hoped. Yeah. Where contract was essentially called into question as a result of, of injury, wasn't it? And and it kind of it, it, talk, talk talk us through what a a how how it came to an end and and b how you felt coming out of the that that process, thinking okay, I'm on my own now. What happens next? Uh, I, guess, I guess I'll start. So I, I was at Scarlets um, playing in the best team in the league at the time. Won the league, runners up the following, league, uh, the following season. And then 
kind of a sense of as, as teams grow under small budgets, players look for more money, and and you, that's the reality. You have to kind of rebuild the team. And I kind of got to the point with Scars, and I thought I had three kids. It's time to come home. Um, and it was a selfish decision for me personally. It wasn't a necessarily a rugby decision. I thought maybe I could come home and get looked after by the union a bit. Ruptured my Achilles in my last game for Scarlets. Um, got a DVT from the surgery. Um, and basically came back to Edinburgh and within six months was kind of called into the office and said, um, every contract has this clause. If you're injured for six months, in England it's nine months, every other is nine months, in Scotland it's six months, we have the right to renegotiate your contract and if you don't agree, terminate your contract. I'm right in thinking that that up until this point it almost never happened it's before. Never happened it's, before. It's, it's not done generally. Well, certainly not to, I was Scotland captain at the time. <laughs> yeah. So that, which was, um, I don't, it's, not, it's definitely not a, a woe as me, but it kind of just, it kind of brought a bit of clarity to my mind around, you know, talk about rugby family and, and rugby loyalty. And it was actually, well, you're, you're going to totally shaft me. I moved my whole family, I bought a house, relocated, uh, and they offered me 50% of my pay. And I, and I, it actually made it, if they had said 20%, I maybe would have considered it. It was 50%, and it was just, I can't even pay my mortgage. So I can't do this. So I basically said, look, I'll retire. I had, I, had, I had a ruptured Achilles. I couldn't walk still. Six months in, I couldn't walk properly. I was like, well, I'll have to stop. Long story short, we, we, got, we kind of figured out a way to, to piece it together. But I knew, I knew six months into a contract, uh, and I hadn't played a game for the club, that I wasn't going to be part of the club long term. Because it was, it was almost impossible to recover that situation from a trust point of view. So I, I kind of knew and then went to World Cup, didn't go to plan, came back, and then COVID happened. So I kind of ended up, we talked about I made the decision to retire. And then... Yeah, I kind of struggled a little bit with the initial kind of transition. COVID bizarrely made it easier because I knew I had to do something. So I kind of knew for a while that it was coming around the corner, whether it was that year or the next year, it was going to happen. I was really lucky. Actually, rupturing my Achilles was bizarrely one of the best things that happened long term to me because it gave me an opportunity to work in the media. And I, w and I got to do it when I was Scotland captain. And I probably wouldn't have been given those opportunities, or I don't know if they would have presented themselves in the same way for a sustained period. So it gave me an opportunity to do that, and then kind of got in that door, and then I kind of moved into the whiskey stuff. Um, I had an opportunity there, and, and didn't have a clue, to be honest. I mean, it's, it's laugh. I still laugh. Like my first few weeks in meetings, like googling every single acronym. I was like P and L. What's that going to be? <laughs> and people, and I, I, did, I literally understood nothing about business so the guy uh, my boss he took a bit of a punt on me and, I, and I've repaid it I've, I've managed to figure it out so um but yeah I, I'm I think as happy as I've, I've I've been I think I've I've got the balance right at the moment it's not to say it won't change um I stay involved in the game which I really enjoy through through commentary and punditing and, and presenting and and actually doing something away from the sport has been really healthy for me so it's a uh, is there a bit of luck involved probably I think there's a you kind of create your own luck, and I and I did a lot of stuff off you know in my last couple of years, you know meeting people and you're like why are people like go and grow your network. I'm like why what the heck who why how where and I showed up for a, like a job interview in the wrong city. It was meant to be on in Queen Street, and I showed up in Queen Street, Edinburgh, and it was in Edinburgh and it was in Glasgow. I, I mean, I totally fucked up. Like I, I was a rugby player who'd just been had my hand held through sixteen years, and you're like well, on you go. So. It happens, and you've got to kind of piece together the, the next phase. And I've got mates now that retire. You've got to, you've got to piece it together, and you've got to you've got to work through it. And the reality is that no one does it for you. 
the unions will help as best they can, but actually you've got to, you've got to go out there and do it yourself. The pressure of having to land on your feet with a family, with kids, with a mortgage, how did that compare to the pressure of leading your country? Um, <laughs> it's a different pressure. I remember in COVID thing and I was going to have to, I was genuinely looking at things I could sell to sit on a job. And I was like, we're in COVID and who the hell is going to employ a retired ex rugby player who has no commercial skills and no one's going to sell their own businesses. No one's investing. And it's probably the first time in my life I've been financially stressed. And it's probably the, the only time where I've actually lay in bed at night and thought, what the hell am I going to do here? How am I going to figure this out? Cause like I said, I've got bills to pay. I've got mortgages. I've got kids. I've got all these responsibilities and it's me. That's, it's me that's responsible. Um, in comparison to, you know, captaining your country, um, I don't know, captaincy was something that I, I, I quite enjoyed. Again, if I had my chance again, would I have done it differently? I don't know if I could, because I, I kind of did it as the way I thought it should be done. And I did it probably in the, I was, was I molded probably by players that I really respected as captain. So I found the stress of captaincy probably, you know, it's different to the kind of stress of retiring and trying to provide, it's a different kind of stress, but it's still that, that stress of, you are providing, you're not providing financially, but you're providing guidance and the burden of, of leading and leadership and being the guy that people look to for answers. In that regard, it is very similar. But again, it was just fun. It was meant to be fun. It was a it was sport. A game. It, it was a game. Yeah. And, you know. Whereas being, being a parent isn't, is less of a game. It's less of a game, yeah. <laughs> but I do, I do think there was times when I, you know, talk about being financially stressed and not sleeping. Actually, Throughout my career, I slept and I never had problems. The only time I struggled was when I was captain and bad game, bad individual performances. You know, didn't probably some games where I didn't probably uh, do the things that I expected myself and others to do. That's probably the times where I lay in bed and I thought, I'm not doing this very well. The Netflix documentary. Yeah. What's it first? What was it called? Contact. Uh, something contact. The word yeah. contact in there is all I know. Yeah. Um, I think it's out on Wednesday. I think it will be, yeah. So this will be very well timed. In fact, <laughs> You're um, welcome, Jamie, clip starts here. <laughs> what do you want the outcome of the behind the curtain look at the Six Nations to be? Because I think against the the discussion we had earlier of the future of the game, how to make people buy into its future more, this feels like a pretty big, yeah, big definitely. component of that. So what what do you what do you want the outcome of the Netflix? insight to be for the game and the players uh, I think I think if you look at the the, the people who produced it the ones that did um, drive to survive as uh, a break point is the tennis one yep and uh, the golf one I what it's called and, and I think that the whole point of and I think by all accounts the engagement in, in Formula One in particular has gone through the roof from off the back of it, yeah. Drive it's, to Survive is more entertaining than F1. Yeah, totally. J Jamie watches Drive to Survive, and whenever I talk about F1, he rolls his eyes. I'm, I'm probably the same. Actually, I've never, care. I've never watched F1, <laughs> but I watch it. and I'm like, yes, no, series, out. yes. And I think, what, what's Gunther doing? What's Gunther yeah, doing? Yeah, yeah, he actually, yeah. he actually left. Hass. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's, just, he's, he's just, just moved. Yeah, just gone, yeah. So yeah. I, that's probably what, where you want it to happen. And I think, I think tennis was probably similar in terms of the documentary is brilliant and creating storylines which you don't necessarily see. I don't know how it's going to work in a team. It's probably my one concern, how you mm. showcase individuals in a team sport is probably the challenge. But I'm the same. I don't necessarily understand NFL, but I've always watched the Hard Knocks documentaries. I've always, I'll watch any documentary, any sports documentary. Have you seen it, the Wrexham documentary yet? Yeah, yeah. I think 
big big claim. I think it's the best docuseries ever made. Yeah, Pat Affleck's uh, brilliant. The, story, the, the, the threads they pull on. Yeah, well, that's it. It's enga- And it's engaging. And I, and I think that's probably the challenge for rugby is how do you... How do you get people engaged who don't necessarily watch the game? And I think uh, the hope is, I guess, that people watch that and it becomes not just rugby people. People go on Netflix and see it and think, well, I've not really watched rugby. Because I, I don't play I don't play American football. I'm a very average tennis player. I'm a very average golf player. But I watch all of them. And it's probably made me watch more of them. And it's made me watch more sport in general. So I think that's probably the, the biggest outcome that can come off it is probably you know, big picture is commercially, how do, will that engage people? And they'll see something which they haven't seen before. And the other part is how, how does it become a more global game? How do you engage people that potentially weren't engaged previously? It's the question that sits behind all that is, do you think the infrastructure systems and people that operate and run rugby in the UK are prepared for the potential upside that could come from this? I, th- I think there was, a, there was a reluctance to actually do the documentary I think they had to all agree, obviously. And I think a couple of home unions were very reluctant to give access to behind the scenes. And I think they, they obviously agreed in the end. But that, that kind of narrow-mindedness of that, like, oh, I don't want this, it's our little secret and we don't want the world to know. And it's actually like, well, there's something bigger here and you're kind of custodians to actually grow this game. Even though you're, yeah. when you're in it, like, if someone says to me, oh, you're a custodian, you're growing the game. Like, I don't care about that when you're a player. You just don't care. You want to play and you want to win and you want to play well. So they have to be. I think the opportunity is massive. You know, there was a you know, premier and people, all eyes are going to be on it. And the timing of it's great before the Six Nations. And the Six Nations is, is an amazing competition. You know, crowds, engagement, fans. But what happens in April? You know, when the Six Nations and the cameras aren't there. How, that, that's the challenge is how do you Netflix Six Nations and how do you keep people really engaged beyond the Six Nations? Less, as you said, less games probably because yeah. because health health is a huge component of this, and the games getting people are getting. Big. I mean, centers are basically back rows that can move a little bit quicker now. It's, it's frightening. It is frightening. I can't. I, I don't even know. I used to play back row. I don't know the rules of a scrum anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm watching it on TV, and everyone's like, oh, what's that? "Why is the whistle blowing?" I'm like, "Honestly, no." I try commentate. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, honestly, <laughs> you just, just make it up sometimes. Just, oh yeah, and then I get people abuse you online for getting it wrong. I'm like, well, I don't know. The referee doesn't know, so I'm, yeah. I'm, giving, I'm making a fist of it here. <laughs> it's it's difficult to keep, but but those those parameters and measures need to be in place for the health of the players because yeah. I mean, as somebody who's had. I mean, my, what I was good at on a rugby pitch was getting from a scrum to to a rock and getting over the ball. Turnovers yeah. were my thing. That was basically my only use. Yeah. But it meant that the amount of times I was badgering my way over a ball and getting hit in the head yeah, was yeah. one too many times. And that meant that a game that I loved, the community that I loved, my day-to-day, week-to-week was immediately just, that's it. Yeah. No, you've, you've been hit in the head one too many times. You can't play any more contact sports. How many, do you know how many concussions you had? Three and four weeks. Oh, so yeah, okay. you're thinking, hang on. The, the, there's meant to be a gap of three weeks between yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, But Magnus Bradbury. Yeah, Maggie. On a uh, on a Canada tour. Are you the same age as him? Uh, I was year below him. Year below oh, him, yeah. Okay. So so uh, we were on a Canada tour and we were on a lazy river in a water park and I felt my, my trunks get pulled through a donut and I thought, oh, <laughs> uh-oh, here we, here we go, here we go. And the next thing I know, I'm under the water, out of the water thinking, okay, I'm in the air. Yeah, and then head first back. Th- accuracy was fantastic, to be fair. Back through the donut head smashes off the floor this was two weeks after the first concussion but because it wasn't during a rugby match nobody anywhere staff nothing considered that 
it had, be. be, it had been a concussion because I just hit my head at yeah, Watt Park. Yeah. Silly, but boys being Silly, boys. Yeah. And then back, Tyndale tens. I went back to my first game and yeah, got knocked unconscious over a rock. And it was, we couldn't piece together why it was so bad for a while. And it was like, right, okay, well, actually, if you look at it this logically, you probably got concussed or exacerbated an existing concussion in the second. Yeah. So the third one was really bad. And even at the time, I mean, there was a specific member of staff that I never saw eye to eye to on, on a cricket or a rugby pitch. And he tried to put me back on because we needed players. And I'm like, I have just come back from unconsciousness. Yeah. You fucking idiot. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's, that's mad, and that man. was only, that wasn't long ago. I think yeah. it was the the um, there was a documentary that came out on the NFL. Uh, I can't remember what it was called. Um, had quite a big impact, and then the narrative really started to develop. It got taken more seriously. Yeah. Everybody had done a concussion test. It, it, it got looked at as a. So you were what, tw- in your teens then. Yeah, it was. Uh, it just turned eighteen, I think. Yeah. Okay. So it was. Uh, that was it. And, and again, I was. I was never. I, I would never. I mean, I had ambitions of playing professional rugby when I had had puberty hit me like a train at the age of like the age of 12 so you I was like you're the big guy I, I, yeah early. it was physics it was it wasn't rugby skill it was pure <laughs> physics he was the big person and then everybody else caught up and I thought oh you, you're actually not that remarkable at this game I, I, and, and and that was it but it doesn't matter because it was so rewarding and so valuable to me that yeah. whatever level I played at having that taken away was was damaging I filled the gap with self-driven health and fitness and then powerlifting and, and now here we are but it, it it, that was that was before everyone was enormous and the impact was as high as it is and the ambition yeah. was as high as it is and and that's going to get worse and worse and worse and I think if you're in rugby and you've grown up around it you see the value beyond that potential risk because everything's got a risk yeah of course yeah but in 10 years time from now you know, I was speaking to um, a friend of mine yesterday who was here Melrose Rugby Club he's, he's, he's from Melrose beating heart of the community there Sevens birthplace. Yeah, yeah, the rugby club post COVID has gone from being about eighty five percent of the participation in children to swinging almost he reckons sixty forty to the football club because football could play sooner than rugby could after things started opening up again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which meant that that community developed and they never came back to rugby. So there's this generation of kids growing up in Melrose that have aligned themselves with football rather than rugby, and the so, downstream yeah. effect of that against the context that we've discussed. I, I, I see rugby and the developments given me as giving me the foundations to do all the stupid shit I do now from a, from a, from a training point of view and a character building point of view. And I would love for my kids that don't yet exist to have that experience in the future. But yeah, a lot of the questions today has been focused around what does that future look like? Because you've got, you've got three kids. Yeah. Your wife's very bought in. Yeah. But is there a part of you that thinks risk reward here? And that's coming from somebody that's taken the game to the extremes. Yeah, I, I, that's the other thing I talk about. Things I get asked a lot is around uh, kids playing. Would I let kids play? Um, I, you know, I almost retired at one point because of head knocks. So I, I, I had my first concussion when I was 19 and got knocked unconscious for five minutes, swallowed my tongue, you know, in hospital for overnight, you know, scans. It's a really, really bad one. And then I had a crazy thing to say, but I was lucky in that my concussions, when I got them, I was unconscious. So I, there was no choice of playing. And that's the real danger, isn't it? They talk about it as when you, in a second, I don't know what they call it, you know, get a concussion and playing again and playing again. Yeah, like a c- concussion syndrome. Yeah. yeah. So I, I was quite lucky that in that regard, not lucky to get concussed, obviously, or be unconscious, but it was, it, it removed me from the field. So I had probably four concussions, you know, known concussions. Um, yeah, I've got friends up in amateur rugby. 
who had concussions and probably had less treatment than I did or less awareness or less you know care so I was never forced to play I was never asked to play when I was concussed I was never forced back I always had a very I think I always viewed it as something very serious obviously it is <laughs> which sounds a crazy thing to say but I know I played in Wales and guys would play with concussions and I'd say how you feeling I'm not good why are you playing I've got I'm out of contract this year I'm a young guy, I've got to play. And that, that's never going to change until you find an objective tool which measures concussion, which says you cannot play. Um, we won't get there, but... Yeah, I, I, th I think the kids' game is safer than it's ever been. I think, yeah, to, to your story and to... You know, I remember at school watching a cup final at Dollar playing uh, Merkiston, actually. Uh, I was... It was probably 2002, and the guy, Jonathan White, Joffe... Scotland routine is one of the, he was meant to be the next big thing. He got concussed and staggering all over the pitch, crab walking, um, and he came back on and played. And I'm like, that's mad. Yeah, that's madness that that was ever allowed. But that was that was the way the game was managed, and it was there's no understanding. I think that would never happen now. No. And kids now, I've got kid my my eldest is eleven, uh, ten, and there's like a kid in his in his class who hit his head, and he's you can't play for a couple of weeks now. And there's just so much. I think the point I'm trying to make is the kids' game is safer. The kids' game is not faster. Kids are not bigger than they were. Where do you think that threshold crosses? Probably when you get kids who are who are still kids at 16, 17 playing with men. So going to professional rugby. And I think I think I watch school rugby now and it, it's a much faster game than when I played. And there's S and C and there's diet and there's pathways and there's loads of going on. So I think it, it definitely reaches a point where there's got to be a bit more of, a, of an awareness around it. But you're not going to make the game safe. And that's, that's not a popular thing to say, and it will yeah. never be a safe game. In the but same way that you can't make F1 you can't, you can't uh, drive I mean, the car it's, it's safely. as safe as it can be, exactly. but it's, if you crash into a wall at 200 miles an hour... It's mitigating risk. How do you mitigate risk? How do you make parents feel confident enough that if there's head knocks, they're going to be looked after? How do you limit contact at training? Oh, I think contact at training, I didn't do any at the end of my career because I was falling apart, but... <laughs> Scarlet's was great. We we basically did none. It's like we were playing well. It's like we don't need to do contact. But then you come. We, I came to Edinburgh. It's like we do contact every day. We're tackling every day. And I'm like, why are we tackling every day? But, and I had yeah. shoulder surgeries, wrist surgeries, concussion, bulging disc. I'm like, I'm not tackling every day. I've tackled for 30 years. I know how to tackle. But you knew that because of experience. Yeah, and the young young guys yeah. wouldn't have that confidence. And I was confident enough to say, you know what? And I and I would always back up at the weekend. So. I don't think you have to train contact. I never. I actually think there's no reason to train. We'd have called bone on bone. So without pads in training, I don't think there's any need for it. Maybe in pre-season, but I think that's probably the way to make the game safer. Limit training, which is by all accounts they're doing it. Play less games. Uh, I know there's constant studies into how to improve concussion awareness. How do you improve return to play protocol? But it's much better than it was. It's much better than it was. And the game's not the game. People and this is the thing that frustrates people. Say the games. The game is faster. People aren't bigger. Or that certainly, 2007, 2008 was when I think it was probably the biggest. I think the overall, the 15 players on the pitch as a whole are larger. But the yeah. actually, I, I, think, I think, yeah. I mean, the it, reason for it's centers. Yeah. It's centers specifically. <laughs> like, the, the reason for increased concussions I th and it, is the ball's in play longer now. Yeah. The way the game's refereed now is actually the, game, the ball's in play for 50% more time. You've got 50% more collisions. You're asking players to do more in the time that the ball's live. There's an expectation that front row forwards are not just scrummaging. They're involved in you know high-speed collision impacts. So actually, the game's not necessarily... 
it's better coach and it's a bit quicker is that the ball is in play a lot longer so you're at the demand on players better snc and science and nutrition and all that stuff there's a bigger understanding of how to get more out of players so you're asking and the demands are greater on players but you, your brain it takes one knock and your brain says night night a lot of this probably applies to the nfl as well and just other contact sports in general yeah. is, is you, you can only push it so far before the risk starts spilling over the reward curve but i should say as well i feel absolutely zero resentment for all staff barring the one that tried to put me back I'm on at Tyndale turns or water park shenanigans because it was a reflection of the times yeah and it was good crack and at the end of the day it, 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 it <laughs> yeah. was a, it was a risk of playing it was yeah. a risk of playing the game at the time i just sort of found myself in this four-week window where life didn't go the way that ideally on paper it would have gone but yeah. that's how things unfold but I think f- final question against against the the sort of transition you've been been through from a rugby to turning up in the wrong city for your for your job interview to, to, to now to now be, I was hungover as well, which uh, didn't help. Oh, I bet, <laughs> it was a bad hangover. I bet the self loathing was pretty remarkable that day. Yeah, I sat in my car questioning whether I was ever going to get a job. <laughs> you haven't helped yourself here, John. Um, no. What 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 do you want the future to look like? Career, personal life, kids. What 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 do you what do you see it? see it looking like for you because you've had a lot of experience a lot of travel a lot of exposure to lots of many things through through the sport of rugby but how are you gonna how are you gonna manifest that as a as a as a as a forward motion for you as an individual do you know i was thinking before i came in i was thinking about this last night and that's and we're talking about training earlier and like why i train now and it's kind of it's kind of quite depressing the reality is that i'm kind of almost midlife now and it's, I, I remember my dad turning 40 and I remember my mum, dad and, you know, parents, friends turning 40. And you're, like, you're kind of there now. And I feel like I'm still 23. But you, want, you kind of realize that you, you've got to look after your body and you've got to look after your mind. And I don't want to be, it's quite serious. I don't want to be that kind of person that gets to 65 and you've kind of, it's all kind of gone past. I think this is the, probably the, the prime time in my life, certainly. I think you're, you're, you're young, you're 20s, you're essentially just being an idiot when you're playing rugby like that. You're just living your best life. You're with your mates. You're getting well-paid, looked after. I think the next sort of phase of my life is about, I'm really enjoying it, but I, I kind of realize that one of my favorite things I say is you know, days are short, days are long, but the years are short. Like it, you blink and like, I've got a 10 year old son. It's like you blink again and he's going to be 20. Yeah. It's like, how do you, how do I get the most out of the next 10, 15 years? To really, you know, you know, set myself up so I can retire probably is a, a financial goal. It's how do I? I don't want to be working when I'm seventy. I don't want to be working when I'm sixty probably. So selfishly, how do I? How do I put myself in a position to do that? But how do I also work-life balance is the biggest challenge for anyone now. You go from a position where you got lots of free time as a rugby player to actually you're you don't realize how much free time you have when you're playing sport. To now it's like I've got three kids, I work most weekends, I've got a full-time job got to provide the kids are in school how do i actually make sure that there's time for me to to really make sure that i'm looking after myself well because you're talking mental health it can easily creep up on you to, yeah, to yeah, the point yeah. where you're like i'm not doing very well here so i think it's about continual growth i think you know career-wise i want to i want to keep doing presenting i keep wanna, i want to i'd love to stay involved in sport but i'm also realistic that the next cab off the rank when someone retires is you know, there'll be a time when my face doesn't fit anymore with with sport, and that that's okay. And that's I'm totally aware of that. How do I grow my own career and find a niche where I'm really happy doing it? So that that's probably where I'd like to get to. Um, don't know if I really answered your question properly, but I think that that's the aim for me. Is how how do you you know I'm driven. I want to I want to keep progressing selfishly with my own career, but I don't want to work myself to the ground. I don't want to be one of those guys that literally lives to work. 
you know, that's that's not why. That's what rugby gave me real clarity on: is that you're not here just to work. It's that you're meant to actually enjoy what you do. And if you don't, then kind of what what what's the point? Full stop. Full stop. Period. There we are. Period. Yeah, I, I, did, I didn't want to say period against the uh, not so not to upset any more Americans having slammed, slammed the NFL here, but no, very very fascinating conversation. Really enjoyed that. And I, Thanks for having me. I think you're right. The, the, the questions you've just asked are the questions I'm constantly asking myself, as I'm very much somebody that lives to work at the moment. And yeah. I, whilst I love every element of it, when I feel like the bucket's overspilling a bit, mm. it's like, oh, fuck, hang on. Yeah, yeah. How do we pull this back? And I've often put myself in a position where it's very difficult to pull back yeah, from. Yeah. So keep asking questions is, is kind of, yeah, is kind of what what I expect my answer to be in yeah. 10 years' time and 10 years' time after that. Yeah. And if I've ever got the answers, then I've probably got complacent. And Yeah, well, I'll come find out if you've got the answers. <laughs> <laughs> no, mate, really enjoy that. I'm conscious that we, we've timed that perfectly. It's one minute past nine. So nice work. Good man. Thanks, mate. See you soon. Cheers.